And Father, where else could we go? Would we go except with you? You are the great and mighty one. You're the almighty one. And we rely upon you today, Lord. We thank you for this time as we open your word, your precious word, your inspired word, your authoritative word to us. I pray that by your spirit, you give us understanding, give us application. Lord, where rebuke needs to be done in our hearts, I pray it would happen. Where encouragement needs to be done, I pray that would happen. Where we need to learn how to live your ways, I pray that you give us insight and wisdom in how to do that, that we might be your witnesses. And so, Lord, take this time, use it as you see fit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Passage is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 10 to 25, so open your Bibles, if you would, please. We are familiar with the only job the Lord Jesus has given us to do, and that is to make disciples. Remember the Great Commission, as we call it, Matthew 28, 18 and 19, where Jesus comes to his disciples and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Now, King Jesus has given every one of his disciples this command. If you know Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning, if Christ is in your life, if you're in the kingdom, you have been charged by the Lord to make disciples. He's given this command to every one of us. And he has every right to do so. He loves us. He died for us. Hallelujah. But the right to command his followers to make disciples is not because he loved us. Did you know that? It's not because he died for us. But it's because he's the king. The father has given King Jesus all authority in heaven and on earth. Our motive for obedience to this is because we love him because he first loved us. I praise God for that. But the fact he commanded us to make disciples is because he is the king with all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth. Indeed, he is worthy of our obedience. But down through the centuries, disciples of Jesus have been busy making disciples. And I would dare say, if that had not happened, we would not be here today. Isn't that true? There have been many who have gone to unfamiliar places, learned unfamiliar languages and customs, invested their lives to make disciples of Jesus at a great cost and sacrifice to them. We think of the Amblers in East Asia. We think of the Huffmeyers in Brazil, or at least they're going back there. Megan in Mongolia, and even Ryan behind the walls at Keene Mountain. The Lord moved him there, and now he has to learn a new culture about how to present and live out Yahweh's ways to those behind the walls at that correctional center. But you know, not everybody goes to foreign places today as missionaries, although it's far more they could go, we could go, than in times past. It's a lot more convenient today. And by the way, it's been said that before the days of air travel, of course, they had to go by ships. Missionaries left for the mission field for the long haul, not just for a couple years, not just for short work projects, but for the long haul. They would often use the coffin that they would be buried in as a suitcase to take their worldly goods with them. And when they left, they had no thought of returning home. This was their commitment. 
back in the day. But the task of making disciples of all nations is not done yet. Not by a long shot. The Lord Jesus gave his people the command 2,000 years ago. I don't know if you've been keeping up, but we've added a few more image bearers of God on earth since that time. Would you agree? The present population of the world is 7.9 billion people. Some of the latest stats regarding all those who claim to be Christians throughout all the world of all stripes show about 2.5 billion followers of Jesus. So it looks as though like there's a great disconnect, doesn't it? King Jesus, the one who has authority over every square inch of this planet, and every nation in the world has about 32% of the world following him, or at least those who claim to follow him. Now that's quite a bit of difference, isn't it? Should be 100%, it's only 32%. It's a problem. Is there a solution? Definitely, yes, there is a solution. It's a simple answer, really. Simple but comprehensive. Simple, but all must take part. And the answer is, title of the message, Homegrown Discipleship. Our passage for today, as I mentioned, is Deuteronomy 6, 10 to 25, and it provides the answer in practical ways of how to do this. Homegrown discipleship. Just like we saw last time we were in Deuteronomy, the Lord's word to the Lord's people through the mouth of Moses is oh so very practical. Now, of course, the passage in front of us today is not New Testament, it's Old Testament. But the divine strategy that we're going to find out today cannot be improved upon. See, the Lord's plan has always been for his people to live his ways in front of the pagans as a witness to them. And Moses reminded Israel that the righteous ways of the Lord are their wisdom. They define Israel's greatness and literally enable them to make sense of the world. That's how Moses described the ways of Yahweh through the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. And it's these righteous ways of, of Yahweh that the head of every household was to teach all those within their household. In a word, homegrown. Discipleship. But what would the purpose for this homegrown discipleship be? That all Israel might be disciples, learners, apprentices of their Savior, of their deliverer, of their provider, Yahweh. Today we'll begin to understand homegrown discipleship with the reminder of a future blessing and a warning. So let's read verses 10 to 12 to see this. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, eh, listen to this, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. So, what was the blessing? How about multiple blessings, right? In a word, it's a reminder that they were going to enter into a land full of milk and honey. Not only abundant harvests, 
But everything they could ever want was already prepared and ready for them. Imagine going into a place, a house, you move in, they give you the key, you owe nothing. It's filled completely with everything you'd ever want. That was Israel. That was the blessings. Imagine going into a city. It all set up. All the shops were there. Everything's great. That's Israel's blessing that God was going to give them. See, again, great, good cities. They did not build. Houses full of good stuff. They did not build. Cisterns full of water. They, they didn't have to dig. Vineyard and olive trees, all ripe for the taking. In short, everything they could ever want was all right there. All they had to do was go take it, to live in the blessing of Yahweh. But the Lord knew a little bit about fallen human nature, doesn't he? After they would begin to enjoy the Lord's blessings for a while, they would look around, they say, you know what? Well, this is good, but, but. What would begin certainly as expressions of gratitude to their provider of all good things, it would begin a slow fade. The newness would wear off, and eventually they would forget the Lord, whether through passive indifference or a practice putting off at an arm's length. They would live in the blessings of the Lord, but they would neglect to live in his presence and relationship. But horrifically, that is a human condition, isn't it? Unless we as God's people are very careful, the blessings of God's prosperity has a way of dulling our gratitude and thankfulness to him. Tell me that's not true in our lives. I'll never forget it. When Kitty and I were first married, we were visiting relatives who lived in California. Now, we were both young Christians at the time, and, and we were seeking the Lord. We wanted to know more of him. And we were in a restaurant with an uncle and an aunt who seemed to be mature in the Lord. They would talk to us about the Lord and, and what the Lord meant to them. And so we went out to eat with them. And when the dinner was served at the table, I forget whether it was Kitty or me, but we asked the question to the uncle and aunt. We said, who's going to pray? Well, the answer came back as a fork skewered a piece of meat. Oh, we're all just thankful. Now, I thought that somebody who was mature would pray a prayer blessing. Thanks. And perhaps it was my own cowardice that prevented me from praying. But the tragedy was that a prayer of thanksgiving for the food was not offered. Now, I'm sure we can all multiply those stories. But the point is, it's so easy to forget the Lord in our daily lives, isn't it? We all have a tendency to drift unless we closely follow the Lord. You imagine yourself as it were, you know, walking up a down escalator. The moment that we stop is the moment that we start drifting. Had the Lord's blessings we once thought were profound over time become old hat, stale, not as profound as they once were. I think of the blessings of salvation. In my own life, what about yours? How many years ago did you come to Christ? Is the newness of salvation still with you? Or has it become kind of old hat? You know, just kind of like business as usual. Oh, um. 
I believe it was Spurgeon who said that the Apostle Paul was so effective for the Lord because he never got over the wonder of the Lord saving him. What about you? What about me? May we heed the warning here as the Lord's disciples. Don't forget him. But indeed, who was it that the Lord, through Moses, warned the people not to forget? It's in verse 12. The Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In other words, don't forget the Lord who was their deliverer, their savior. Well, what is a remedy against drifting away and forgetting the Lord, the deliverer of and provider for his people? There is a remedy here, and and Moses talks about this. It is found in an undivided loyalty to Yahweh, mighty deliverer. Let's look at verses 13 to 16 to see this. It is the Lord your God you shall fear, you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Masa. So these verses can be summed up in three short statements. Number one, do serve the Lord alone. Number two, don't go after the gods of the nations surrounding you. And number three, don't test the Lord again, as some of you did many years ago at Masa. So let's briefly look at the antidote to prevent drifting away from the Lord. First, the positive. Fear the Lord. Actively and consistently serve Him. Swear by His name alone. In other words, enthrone the Lord as Lord in your life. To fear Him means that we engage our Savior with our emotions, with our will, and with our minds. And we do that by personal knowledge, getting to know our God more and more and better and better. Moses said, in essence, know your Savior, know your deliverer, know your provider. And the more God's people know their Savior, their deliverer, their provider, the more loyally they will tend to follow him, clinging to him in his ways. Now, what's amazed me throughout our study of Deuteronomy, and I'm not sure if you caught it, but it has profoundly affected me, is how consistent the ways of the Lord are in the Old Testament with God's people and the New Testament in God's people. Remember how the ten words began. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I've saved you. I have a saving relationship with you. As I said before, I remind us, Once again, the Lord's ways were given to the Lord's people. The Lord did not give his ways to those who were not his people. And he gave his ways to the Lord's people. Why? So that through obedience and gratitude, we might show the Lord that we love him. And to know the Lord is to love the Lord. Isn't that right? And to love the Lord is to know the Lord. Remember what the Lord Jesus said regarding eternal life. Now, we've heard of John 3.16, right? Those who believe in him 
will not perish, but get what? What will we get? Eternal life, everlasting life. And Jesus defined eternal life, everlasting life this way, that they may know you, Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In other words, the very thing that the Lord Jesus has given his people in salvation is eternal life. Eternal life is to know him in a relationship and as well as the Father. And the more we as God's people know the Lord, the more we will properly fear him. God's people are to properly fear the Lord. And they're to serve the Lord. In brief, the Lord delivered his people from taskmasters who wanted to abuse them and torture them and kill them. And God wanted to rescue them so that he could give them life and return to them the worth and dignity as imagers of his. The truth is, in this right, we all serve somebody. Think about Bob Dylan's old song back in the day. We all serve somebody. See, no one but God is a completely free entity, free agent. Even as Joshua said a generation later to these same people, he said, choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Will you serve the Lord? Will you choose to serve the Lord? So a very practical question for all of us this morning. Who's your master? Who do you serve? The Lord Jesus said that whoever practices sin is a slave of sin. He also said, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Isn't that amazing? God will honor those who follow his son. Just as God through Moses challenged Israel, so the Lord Jesus is challenging us. We must choose. We either serve sin or we serve him. It's a choice. It's a binary choice, by the way. Now, of course, it's by the power of his spirit that we serve him. And we have the ability to do so. But it begins with a choice that we make. And so an antidote to spiritual drift is a positive one. Fear the Lord. Serve the Lord alone. And that's what Moses means when he says, by his name you shall swear. It's basically a repeat of the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And as many people have said, and I agree with them, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. He is Israel's deliverer. He is Israel's provider. Pledge allegiance to him alone. Fear the Lord. Serve the Lord. Pledge allegiance to the Lord alone. And now comes a huge roadblock to prevent spiritual drift away from the Lord in the negative side. Verses 14 and 15. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and destroy you from off the face of the earth. Pretty strong statement by the lover of their souls, isn't it? See, because if there's anything that the Lord cannot stand, it is to be spiritually cheated on. He says, 
Don't go after rival gods. Period. End of statement. Like any faithful husband, men, the Lord will not tolerate his people committing spiritual adultery. Indeed, it's all about a faithful relationship between God and his people. I said faithful. I didn't say perfect. A faithful one. By the way, verse 14 literally reads this way. You shall not make it your practice to go after other gods. Don't make it your practice. Did they stumble and fall? Did they stumble and fall? Yes. Do we stumble and fall? Yes. But don't make it our practice. That's the point here. Like we talked about a few minutes ago, we must be on a continual basis, on a continual basis, make the choice. Every time there's a crossroad, serve the Lord or serve other gods. Now, the Lord talked about rival masters in his Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 6, verse 24, he says, no one can serve two masters. This is our Lord talking. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Can't do it. It's impossible. It's a binary thing here. It's not fluidity. The word cannot here is exactly what it says. We cannot, as it's impossible for us to serve both God and money, riches at the same time. We can't do it. One or the other. You've got to make the choice. It's the same way with the gods, the nations surrounding Israel. See, the gods of those nations, they had their destructive ways to include human sacrifice. Now, abortion is bad enough, but for them, it was infanticide. Ritual sexual immorality, and so much worse is what the gods required of the people, the nations. And even if the people obeyed their gods, they never knew if the gods were pleased. But the Lord tells his people what to do to please him. The Lord loves his people. He doesn't hate his people. He's not bothered by them, though he does get angry if they stubbornly persist in being disloyal to him. The Lord is so good and so able to bring us back as we repent. He accepts us back, doesn't he? And speaking of being disloyal, Moses reminds the people that they were not to put the Lord to the test as Israel did many years prior at Massa. Now, what's that all about? Well, briefly, the people were complaining again. And this time it was over lack of water. And God provided water by telling Moses to strike the rock. Now, there's another time God told Moses to speak to the rock, and that was a disaster. But this time it was to strike the rock. God provided for them, but what aroused the anger of the Lord is what he said in Exodus 17.7. And he, Moses, called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying these words, is the Lord among us or not? Can you imagine saying that to the Lord? It was their complaining spirit, casting doubt in his goodness and provision that captured the Lord's attention. And how about you, but I wouldn't want to capture the Lord's attention through that way, would you? But why did Moses put that there? 
of all the things, of all the warnings, of all the good things that God through Moses could have said, Moses said those words. Don't put the Lord to the test at Massa. Remember what he just told them. When God would give them the victory in the land of promise and then set them up with completely built cities, completely built houses, cisterns they didn't have to dig, vineyards and, and olive trees just there waiting for the taking, they needed to watch themselves. So they would not develop a complaining spirit. It's sort of, what have you done for me lately thing, you know? You ever do that with the, with the Lord? I know we never do that, do we? In other words, Israel was to live their lives content with what the Lord blessed them with. But again, what's the human condition? To live discontented lives, isn't it? The truth is, do any of us have what the Lord has not provided? The very air we breathe, the next heartbeat that we borrow, is from Him. When we pillow our heads at night, we go to bed with the expectation that the Lord's going to sustain us and that we're going to wake up the next morning. Isn't that right? Relatively good health. And I say relatively because it seems to me that the whole world is sick, right? <laughs> and by the way, there's nothing like being on the other side, <laughs> being recovered <laughs> to appreciate good health, or at least relatively good health. And what about the relative freedom that we still have in this country? I mean, it's it's going downhill, but we still have the relative freedom. And the power to get wealth and good, close relationships. All of these things are gifts of the Lord. All of them. And so let me ask the question. Israel demanded at Massa, is the Lord among us or not? What do we have to say? He is, isn't he? And it's good to remind ourselves. That's why we come together. It's good to remind ourselves that the Lord is indeed with us. Let's learn to live in the blessings of the Lord and resist the temptation to have a complaining spirit. You know, Paul the Apostle encouraged his friends in Philippi about this sort of thing. When he told them to exercise, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then he says this right on the heels of that. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. In other words, Paul says to the Philippians, put away a complaining spirit. Just put it away. A complaining spirit puts the Lord to the test as we yield to the temptation of demanding that the Lord meets our needs in our way instead of trusting him that he will meet our needs in his way and his timing. Do you trust the Lord for timing? You trust the Lord for his provision, letting him have the say. Now we've been talking about spiritual the antidote to spiritually drifting away from the Lord. We're to fear him. We're to serve him. We're to pledge allegiance to him alone. We're to reject spiritual adultery, to put away a complaining spirit, resting contentedly in our relationship and in his provision. With all that said, there's a reason why Moses warned against spiritual drifting. Israel hasn't entered into the land yet. They're still on the other side of the Jordan. Let's read verses 17 to 19 to see a little bit more about this. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. 
and you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you, as the Lord has promised. In short, Israel desperately needed to cling to the Lord as they crossed over the Jordan River to take the land he promised to give them. If they stayed close to the Lord, practicing his ways, then they would be strengthened for the battles. The greater the strength, the more sure the victory. What was then true physically with Israel is now true with us spiritually. See, spiritual warfare is a given in the life of every Christian. Do you agree with this? See, we all have three enemies. The world and his ways. Our sinful nature and the unseen forces of wickedness in the heavenly places who want to destroy us. The tough part is we have no option. We can't opt out of the battle. Wouldn't it be great if we could? The Lord said, you are spiritual warriors and you're going to get trained in spiritual warfare. See, the day we came into the kingdom of God is the day that we entered into training in spiritual warfare. The Lord has given us his armor. He's given us two weapons. What are those weapons? The word of God. Prayer. I feel compelled to ask us some questions regarding the battle and our place in it. Please consider carefully. We are part of the army of the living God with King Jesus as the captain of our salvation. That's reality. That's what's true. My question for us, series of questions. How are you faring in spiritual warfare? Are you wearing his armor? We're to put it on. Have you learned to use his sword? You advance the kingdom on your knees? When was the last time, and be honest, that you had true spiritual victory in an area of your life concerning sin? See, Paul tells us that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Let's fight as though that was really true in our lives. So we talked about the antidote, the spiritual drift. We talked about successfully engaging in spiritual warfare. And it's all a setup for, wait for it, homegrown discipleship. Let's read verses 20 to 25. Talk about this. When your son, white-spaced daughter as well, asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves at Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all of his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. What are these verses all about? In short, 
All that was said before is a setup for Israel to pass the faith of Yahweh on to the next generation. Otherwise known as what? Homegrown discipleship. Look at the all-important question that the son asked his dad, and especially the very first word in verse 20. When, not if, but when your son comes to you in time and says, what is the meaning of all these testimonies and statutes and rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Now, why would the kids ask this question to their parents, dad in particular? Well, the answer is clear. As the younger generation sees mom, sees dad, live obedient lives in the ways of Yahweh, it will naturally get the attention of the kids. And they will ask what's going on. And Moses says, when that happens, it is now your chance, parents. You're to tell your kids, God is our deliverer. God is our provider. God is our loving commander. It's only right that we love him, that we fear him. Look at all he's given us. He's given us life. He's given us this land. He's abundantly blessed us. And so what is this? Pretty obvious, isn't it? To the degree that mom and dad live Yahweh's ways faithfully before their kids is the degree that the kids will notice. And when they do, dad and mom get the awesome privilege of telling their personal salvation story, their testimony. When son or daughter asks, what's the meaning of all these things? Moses tells mom and dad to give them as the first word. Slaves. We were slaves of Pharaoh. It's king of Egypt. He was a taskmaster who wanted to kill us and abuse us. But the Lord delivered us out of his hand and brought us into this good place. Isn't the Lord wonderful? Let's show him that we love him through our obedience to his ways. Again, what is that? Homegrown discipleship. Yes. But notice the progress. Of course, homegrown discipleship begins with the head of the home, pledging allegiance to the Lord alone through the Shema. Hear, O Israel. He leads them in their, in this every day, twice a day. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. The head of the home ensures that the word of God is on his heart. He meditates on it and creatively gives the ways of the Lord to his sons and daughters all through the day. As Israel settles into the land of promise, dad and mom develop an attitude of gratitude, appropriately fearing, faithfully serving the Lord alone. They refuse to go after the gods of the nations around them. And now, the kids are recipients of the ministry of dad and mom as they creatively weave the ways of the Lord into their lives. Ways that gets the kids' attention. It's not just religious stuff. As mom and dad live the life, the kids see it, and they want to know about it, and they want to join in if mom and dad's living a faithful life. It's not by way of application, an illustration, I want to present to you my beloved. One of her favorite things to do is to listen to a family who loves the Lord and they love to sing together. The family calls themselves as a group, sounds like rain. Maybe you've heard it before, I don't know. 
but they are amazing. They really are. Now I'm going to have Kitty come and briefly share a few things about this family and then introduce a song with which we're familiar with. We've heard it before, Is He Worthy? Now, I didn't know that it was Andrew Peterson who wrote the words and the music to the song, but it truly is an amazing song. And so Kitty's going to introduce uh, his family and then we're going to hear the song. So the mom's name is Lindsay and the dad's name is Bracken. And they have six boys, and she probably is in labor today (laughs) with their seventh child, a girl. And I listened to some of their their testimonies and why they do what they do and how they do what they do and et cetera. And the thing that comes out the most clearly is that these people have a very simple faith. Um, The What comes to them the most is that when Jesus said that we must come to him with the heart of a child and we must trust him with the heart of a child. And those of us who work with children know that the thing about children is they are trusting. We must trust the Lord like a child trusts somebody who is worthy of their trust and sometimes even not so much. But this is a very simple family. They love the Lord very much and their lives are completely um, given over to worshiping the Lord, encouraging people, and teaching their sons and soon their daughter um, their ways. And so you, it comes out in all of their music. You know, one thing that struck me about this song is how it was put together. You know, dad and mom asked the boys various questions, big questions of life, ultimate questions. Focusing in on the one who's worthy. What is this that they're doing? It's basically like a catechism put to music. And a catechism is a series of questions and answers that that uh, parents, especially, would teach their kids, you know, about the truth about who God is and Jesus is. And I refer to, for example, the Westminster Catechism several times, and you may know it as well, and especially the first question of the Westminster Catechism. It goes like this. What is the chief end of man? What is his purpose? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, sounds like rain has taken their passion for the word of God and invited their sons to take part. Did you see the the looks on the faces of the boys? They wanted to do this. They wanted to be there. They wanted to involve themselves in these things. See, dad and mom were creatively introducing their sons to the ways of Yahweh through that song. But it didn't have to be music. It could be other things as well. It could be fun acti- other fun activities. Not that music isn't fun, but I don't see. It could be creative devotional times or scripture memory with incentive. Like, for example, Offering your kids a dollar for every verse that they offer or they they recite back word perfectly. We're only limited by our sanctified imagination about how to get the word of God into our kids and pass it on. So allow me to come full circle with this message today. When Paul was on a second missionary journey, he met a young man named Timothy. And he was well spoken of by the brothers. And he impressed the apostle so much that that Paul wanted to take Timothy on his journey. 
And Paul and Timothy developed a very close mentor-mentee relationship. But see, there was something about Timothy. Because Timothy was already a Christian before he met Paul, even though Paul called him a son in the faith. Now, how did that happen? How did Paul or Timothy become a Christian before he met Paul? In a word? Homegrown discipleship, exactly. In the last letter Paul would ever write, for he was on death row in the Mamertine prison as he was awaiting his martyrdom for his faith in Christ. He penned these words in 2 Timothy 1.5. He says, I'm reminded, Timothy, of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm convinced, or sure, dwells in you as well. Notice there are three spiritual generations. Grandma Lois, Mama Eunice, and Timothy. Because Lois and Eunice were faithful to the Lord and passing on the Christian faith to Timothy, the gospel had a great impact on the Roman Empire through this man. How many people did Timothy reach for Jesus because of a little homegrown discipleship? Remember how we began this message? The Lord Jesus, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, has 32% of the world's population following him. Now, these are generous estimates. By taking all that we talked about today, we can apply homegrown discipleship in our families and one-on-one relationship. And when we do, what happens? When we make homegrown discipleship an integral part of our lives, that 32% of the world that follows Jesus can dramatically increase. 2 Timothy 2.2 gives some amazing math on this. What you heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Notice how many spiritual generations there are in this verse. You got Paul, you got Timothy, you got faithful men, and then you have others. And for sake of simplicity, let's just take two generations. Let's say that Paul is able to mentor Timothy in the ways of the Lord so that by the end of one year, Paul and Timothy are now disciple makers. And then what happens is that Paul would take another man, Timothy would take another man, and they would disciple them. At the end of two years, what we have now, four disciple makers. Repeat the process. And then you got eight, then 16. 32, 64, and on and on it goes. And if everyone does their part, how many years will it take for King Jesus to have 100% of this world's population following him, even when we take into account population increase? The answer is about 32 years, if everyone does their part. Now, we know there are factors involved to include that of evil spiritual forces that are against us from applying homegrown discipleship. And we can't force everybody to do what they need to be doing, what is the command of the Lord Jesus to all of us. But each of us can begin right now. Each of us can begin with the motto, make it your own and say, for example, each one, reach one. Say it with me. Each one, reach one. One more time. Each one, reach one. If each of us commits ourselves to homegrown discipleship and our gratitude for the Lord saving us, what can he do with that? 
as we bring this message to a close, let me simply just give you three points to ponder as we think about homegrown discipleship. And if you are not part of this already, if you are not actively involving yourself in a mentor-mentee relationship in homegrown discipleship, and you want to know how to do it, there's a bunch of us here that can do it, and I'd be more than happy to help you as well. But the point, first point is, God has no grandchildren. He only has children. You're either son or daughter of God, or you're not. And that makes homegrown discipleship an imperative. Point two, you've heard this before. If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Especially in your family, earn the right to be heard, to preach the gospel to your kids by how loyally you follow the Lord. And as you do, the words of the gospel, when your kids are actually able to hear and understand, they will ring more true to your sons and daughters then. And homegrown discipleship stands a much better chance to flourish with your kids. And finally, who is worthy? We heard the question, who is worthy? And what's the answer? He is. He's worthy. So let's commit to homegrown discipleship all for the love of the king. Let's pray. Father, how practical is your word? Lord, we look at the Old Testament. So many of us say it's law. Law bad, grace good. But how practical is this? Lord God, you have given us a way ahead. You've given us the ability, Lord, to see a strategy that doesn't overwhelm us. It matters, though, that we engage ourselves in this. But Lord, my, my challenge to myself and my challenge to my brothers and sisters and everyone in the sound of my voice is that, Lord, we would take you up on this strategy and that you would work a work in us in such a way that we would be consumed with homegrown discipleship, starting with our kids, or even more importantly, starting with ourselves and our relationship with you. So Lord, I pray that you'd help us to truly not just understand it, but to apply it. So Lord, I thank you for what you've done here through your word today. I pray that you'd help us, lead us, guide us, protect us from the evil one, give us great success in our homegrown discipleship endeavors. And now, Father, I pray as we turn our attention to the giving, that we will give with, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength as an act of worship. And that again, Lord, we would sing, and we would sing with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength as an act of worship. And we'll give you thanks and praise for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.